Welcome to Buy, Sell, Hold. I'm Mark Green from the Cars Yeah! Podcast. And I'm Keith Martin from Sports Car Market Magazine. This is Show 27. Welcome to Buy, Sell, Hold, the Sports Car Market Podcast. Market experts and car friends for over 30 years, Keith Martin and Mark Green have come together through their mutual love for collector cars. Keith and Mark will take you on a ride into the collector car market, talking with industry experts, helping you navigate your collector car journey so that you know when to make your own decisions to buy, sell, or hold. Buy, sell, hold is all about the essence of collecting. The collector car world is comprised of people who buy, they sell, and they hold the cars that they love. Here on Buy, Sell, Hold, Keith and I talk with industry leaders, collectors, auction houses, consigners, sellers, and more who are experts in the market. So, Keith, who do we get to talk to today? Oh, Mark, our guest today is Chip Connor, who's a good friend, an avid automobile enthusiast, and one of the world's leading car collectors. Hello, Chip, and welcome to Buy, Sell, Hold. Hi, guys. Chip, let's jump right in. If you could describe the collector car market today using just one word, what would that word be and why? It probably would be the same word, Keith, that I I would have used six months ago, and that is correcting or adjusting. You know, the impact of the coronavirus is what is uncertain. What impact will it have, for example, on on a process that began about three years ago where uh, a new equilibrium was being formed in the market. So whether, you know, this is a true black swan event that upends everything, you'll probably remember 1990, the recession then, what happened to the uh, the collector car market or not is anyone's guess. But uh, I, I see it as a process of, of continuing adjustment with the uncertain impact of the coronavirus, either accelerating it or changing it in some way. You know, this morning I was on a live webinar and it was a collector, it wasn't collector car, it was detailers that we were talking. But one of the questions they asked me was, how do you see this affecting the collector car market? And I mentioned our podcast here, Buy, Sell, Hold, and some of the interesting words. Uh, One of them was squishy, uh, yours correcting or adjusting. So one of the questions they asked me, and I'll ask you, Chip, is if you have a collector car right now, would it be best to just sit back and not go out and try to sell it with things being a bit upended? Yeah, I think that that uh, depends on what the collector car is and what your personal situation is. I, I view the, the collector car market as, as fairly stratified. And my space really is, is, is that analog era that preceded 1975. I, I think the greatest cars were made up to that date. And this takes nothing away you know, from the, uh, the McLaren F1s and the F40s and F50s and that type of thing. So I'm, I'm dealing with a segment that is a little bit earlier, the population of which is finite. They're certainly not making any more of them. And within that segment, you know, there, there are various strata. I mean, there's the, you know, the sort of the more mundane, and, and it's really, I don't mean it as a pejorative word, collector car, which would include, you know, 356 Porsches, C2 Corvettes, that type of thing. Then you get into the, the, the blue chip, you know, the 300 SLs, the Goldwings, the Cobras. Then you start to move into investor quality, where you're talking about short wheelbases, Cal Spiders, DB4 GT Zagatos, that type of thing. And then well, again, what I would call the jewels in the crown, which are the Testarossas and the GTOs. And I think that each one of those segments uh, will be impacted differently with, you know, the more mundane, the, the, the collector car segment probably being the most affected and the blue chip or jewel in the crown segment being less so. Absolutely. Any other questions on this topic, Keith, before I do a proper introduction? No, let's let's uh, tell the world who we're talking to today. William E. Chip Connor is an avid vintage automobile enthusiast and one of the world's leading car collectors. 
He's a longtime competitor in both modern and vintage racing and is a regular exhibitor and judge at Concours Elegance events around the world. His cars have won over 100 awards over the years, including many Best of Show awards. Chip sits on the governing Senate of the FIA, the FIA Historic Motorsports Commission, the board of the Peterson Automobile Museum, and is a co-founder of the Best of the Best competition in association with the Peninsula Hotel Group. He is chairman and CEO of William E. Connor and Associates Limited, one of the world's largest merchandise sourcing companies headquartered in Hong Kong with operations across Asia and Europe. We'll be back in just a minute to learn more about Chip and talk about the collector car market. But first, a word from our sponsors. Sit tight, keep your seatbelt on. We'll be right back. Since 1969, Larry's Thunderbird and Mustang Parts has been the source for parts for your 55 to 66 Ford Thunderbird, 64 to 73 Ford Mustang, and 54 to 57 Ford passenger cars. Located right here in the USA, Larry's is also one of the industry's largest in-house upholstery manufacturers, supplying enthusiasts across the globe and many of the world's largest and most prominent parts houses and restorers. Their experienced and knowledgeable sales team will help you get the right parts at the right price, the first time. Buy, sell, hold listeners. Use promo code BSH2020 and get 15% discount on web orders. That's BSH2020. Worldwide shipping is available. Call or visit them now at www.larrystbird.com. And remember, BSH2020 for your 15% discount. Are you thinking of buying a car at an online auction, but worried about how to make a good decision? I'm Keith Martin from Sports Car Market, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new product we've developed to help you be a smarter collector. The SCM Guide to Buying Online is an immediate digital download. It includes five questions to always ask and why. Also, how to protect yourself while buying online from our Legal Files columnist, John Dranius, and our auction editors walk you through what you can and can't learn from a photo. Visit www.sportscarmarket.com slash buying online to purchase your copy today. It's an immediate digital download and it's only $10. Again, that's www.sportscarmarket.com slash buying online and get ready to be a smarter collector. All right, we're back. So Keith, take it away. So Chip, today we're going to talk about three vehicles in your life that have made a difference. A very special vehicle that you bought one that you have sold, and one that you would never let go of. Let's start with the car that you bought that was very special to you. How did you first learn about this car? What was the car, and how long did it take you to acquire it? Well, the the car that I would select uh, would be the the 250 GTO. In acquiring this, I I really shouldn't own this car, given, given how I went about acquiring it. I've long believe that if you really want something, do your homework. And if you have the, uh, the resources to get it, then and act swiftly, you know, see, seize, the, seize the opportunity. And I did everything the opposite of that in this case. This was a car that was owned by my friend in Hong Kong, uh, Patrick Ma. And he acquired the car from a Japanese collector in, in the mid-1990s. And, and you'll recall that the market just fell off a cliff in 1990 and, and really didn't recover for almost 10 years. So he really uh, struck a very good deal when he acquired the car. Towards the end of the 1990s, I started racing. I had a short wheelbase, a CFAC uh, 250 GT short wheelbase, which I enjoyed. I had the opportunity to drive a friend's GTO. And even though you know, the objective specification of a, of a 250 short wheelbase GTO is about the same. You know, both say, have three liter engines, 2,400 millimeter wheelbases, that type of thing. 
the GTO really did exceed its billing. So I made up my mind that I wanted to have a GTO. Patrick, at the same time, decided he was going to get as much money for this GTO as he possibly could. And I simply could not get my head around what I would have had to pay to acquire the the car. So I just let things drag. And, uh, you know, a couple of years after we started the dialogue, he still hadn't sold the car. He wasn't actively marketing it, but he gave it to Brooks and it went through the Stad auction in, uh, in 1990. But that was... 99, I guess it was, or maybe it was 2000. That was about the time the, the dot-com bubble was about to burst. So I was saved by a recession, basically. The car didn't sell at auction. Uh, it went back to the UK, and uh, our conversation started up. Well, I had had so many chances up to that point to acquire this thing that I thought that, you know what, if I want something that was very special, that, that I knew well, arguably the best example of its kind, I better, I better pull the trigger. And that's what I did. And, and I am so happy I did. In hindsight, the fact that I got it is amazing. So Chip, you're, you're watching this car be for sale for a couple of years. What kept you from buying it, you say, was just that you couldn't get your head around the asking price. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's as simple as that. It was just too much money. And and I come from a part of the world where, where people are very shrewd, understand the value of things, and uh, will make sure they extract every penny out of a potential buyer. So, so your decision to pull the trigger, was that a combination of the market becoming more buoyant and a reduction in price of the car? No, it had nothing to do with the the market uh, becoming more buoyant at all. It was simply a personal decision I made that if I was ever to have the chance to own one of the 36 uh, GTOs made, this was my opportunity, especially a car of this caliber. So I just bit the bullet and, you know, and wrote the check. Uh, And I haven't looked back, by the way. Uh, At the time, you know, I was thinking, did I do the right thing or not? I don't look at these things from the standpoint of, of it being an investment. It was very much of an emotional purchase. And, and to this day, you know, I've loved every minute of my ownership of that car. So let's talk about, Chip, a vehicle that you will never let go of. How did you find it? What is it? And what's the most memorable experience you've had with that car? Oh, boy. Well, you know, there, there are a few cars that kind of fall into that category. But the one that sort of cold light of self-analysis that I absolutely would never ever let go is my uh my bentley uh, team car the 1928 blower bentley yu 3250 it was the first blower bentley made and the process of me acquiring that car was as involved as acquiring the gto but different and in the late 1980s early 1990s i really became an aficionado for for vintage bentleys bentleys that were produced prior to the uh rolls-royce acquisition in 1931 when you first look at the cars, you know, they're not intrinsically beautiful. But the more you learn about them, the more you learn about the Bentley boys, this very charismatic group of daring adventurers that were united by a desire simply to get Bentley to win. I mean, remember, they won five Le Mans 24-hour races during the course of about a 10-year period. And you know, it's an acquired taste. Like so much in life, the things that stick with you the longest and, and resonate most deeply are sometimes the things that aren't apparent as being desirable initially. So I became over time, like, you know, developing a taste for a single malt scotch. And the first time you sip it, it's not, you know, you go, you don't understand what the, what the, what the excitement is all about. But I came to love vintage families. And I had a friend named Steady Barker. Steady was one of the old school automotive journalists in the UK in the mold of guys like Dennis Jenkinson or Bill Boddy. And I got along with Steady famously. He was about 75 at the time. This was the middle of the 1990s. And he was telling me about 
a fellow by the name of George Daniels, who was a watchmaker, a curmudgeon, a genius, a national treasure for, for, for Britain that lived on the Isle of Man. And would I like to go see his cars? And you know, by extension, his uh, his watch works. And we did. So we jumped on a Manx Airways flight from London to Douglas on the Isle of Man. George picked us up in an R-type Bentley. Uh, we drove in the rain to his workshops in the northern part of the Isle of Man. We stopped at this ferry bridge where you have to, you know, kind of salute the gremlins to make sure that they don't, uh, you know, create any mischief for you. And and we spent the most fantastic afternoon in the rain going over this car. We went, we went for a drive in it. You know, I looked at his watches. I, I came to appreciate what he has accomplished. He could he could build that Bentley from scratch, and he also could build a watch from scratch. And he invented the coaxial escapement, which is probably the only truly new watch escapement since, since uh, Breguet built the first one, you know, hundreds of years ago. So, you know, it was just a fantastic trip. I enjoyed being with Steady again. He was he was 75 at the time, and uh, and we left. And I start to think about this car, think about this car, think about this car. And I was at an event in Florence, Italy, and I penned a letter from the Hotel Excelsior to George, thanking him for taking the time to see me and, you know, inflating my own credentials as a possible custodian of the car. And would he ever think of selling it? Would he please consider me as, as, as a possible buyer? And about six months later, I heard from Steady, he says, why don't you give George a call? And so I gave George a call. George named a price. I said, it's done. And I, you know, was pinching myself, a car so rare, one of the four Birkin team cars, maybe the most charismatic Bentley, although there is a division between the, you know, the non-aspirated and the blower crowd in Bentley collecting circles. But it was the car that every schoolboy in the 1930s wanted to have. Matchbox made models of it, Airfix made models of it, Scalectric made models of it. So here, you know, in the wake of this trip, to the Isle of Man with with a guy that was 30, 40 years older than me, but but who I viewed as just such a close friend, I suddenly acquired something that I thought in my dreams I would never have. And uh, over the years, I've enjoyed the car thoroughly. Uh, I've come to appreciate the bravery of, of what it takes to drive that car. It, it's demanding. It's complicated. It'll do 140 miles an hour nearly. It lapped Brooklyn's, you know, bumpy track that it is at, at 120 miles an hour. You've got to adjust the drip feed for the supercharger on the dash. You've got to, you know, it's a, you've got to pressurize the, the, the petrol tank to, to keep the fuel going. I mean, it's just, there's just a lot going on, but it is such a rich experience, both, you know, my process of acquisition as well as my enjoyment of the car. And so as I think back, you know, I mean, if there's one that I would never want to see leave my garage, that would probably be it. Ah. So Chip, can you tell us, so you get this car, you buy it, do you remember when you got it to your garage, your collection, the car was placed there and you looked at it and you thought, this is my car now? <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, you know, there. It, it, I took delivery of it in the UK and then it, it's in the US now and, um, and did most of my early driving with it. I mean, this is not a car that you just jump into and, and, and go down the road. I mean, you know, you have got to make sure that you know how to shift that, that D box. Uh, you've got to get all the settings correct. The car, the car has never been fully restored. It was, it was restored in the 1950s by a guy named Harry Rose, but restoration at that time was really a matter of taking components off, refinishing them and putting them back on. I mean, the rec scene on the car is all the same. So, you know, that first interval of ownership was really familiarizing myself with with, uh, you know, with the complexity of the car, how to drive it, growing to appreciate more how tremendously original and important it was. And now, you know, I mean, I'll just take it out 
you know, for a Sunday drive, like it's nothing, but, but it's, you know, the process of living with it for over 20 years, it kind of has given me that confidence. It was not there immediately. Brilliant. Well, let's talk about a significant vehicle that you've owned and you've sold. Uh, what was that vehicle? What led you to let the thing go? Was it complicated? Was it easy? And then when you look back, ah, do you wish you'd kept it? <laughs> yeah, that's why I regret selling it. I wish I'd kept it. But, I, I, you know, there are a number of cars that kind of fall into that category. But the one that, that really sticks out is a uh, 275 GTB C Speciale, the, the, the first series short nose uh, GTB competition car. And again, this was, you know, the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was really starting to get into racing. And this car came up for sale at the Brooks, it was Brooks, yeah, Monaco sale. And in, in 2000, and I bought it sight unseen. I, I have always thought that the 275 GTB, whether it be, you know, the two cam or four cam iteration, uh, one of the most beautiful coupes ever made. I mean, for me, it has stood the test of time. I have never gotten tired of the way they, they look. And so obviously it was love and first sight at first sight from a, from a visual standpoint. Plus it was a comp car, right? Not developed to the degree that the Series 2s were with the, with the dry sump lube and all that, but still it had slats on the rear fender, kind of like a, you know, a GTOS slats. It was a 275 shape, which is, which is just sublime. And so I bought the car. I had it shipped over to the United States and had big plans for it. Boy, this is not only was it beautiful, loved it, uh, but this was going to be Chip's, you know, kind of signature race car. Well, for two years, I could not get the drive shaft balanced. You know, I mean, it just reminds me how many cars I've gotten that I just assume, you know, a little bit of fettling will make it correct. And, you know, it's like pulling teeth to try to get it to run right. I could not get this car to run smoothly. I mean, these cars should be turbine smooth. That V12 is is just a, a, a work of art. Uh, this is pre-torque tube, which came out in 1966, which solved all the balance problems. And, and I gave it to people that were very, very good, and they just couldn't. They, they just couldn't get it fixed. And so, you know, my dreams for this thing that I would, uh, you know, be campaigning it on uh, at, at vintage races and stuff was just never going to happen. And, and I got so frustrated when I, when I just picked up the phone and gave it to RM to sell two years after I got it. And it sold for a lot less than I paid for it. And I was thinking, about, you know, there I gave up too soon on that car. There had to have been a solution to get that thing to run more smoothly. Yeah. And I, I, I've never seen another one come up that I could get. Now, do you know if where the car is today? Was it ever sorted? Uh, yeah, that's a very. I don't know where the car is today. I'd love to know if uh, you know if, if it got sorted. I mean, it's one of those things. I I, I love launches as well. You know, transaxle, the prop shaft turns at engine speed. I mean, you know, I've had issues with those cars as well, but it can be fixed. And it's just a matter of giving it to the to the to the to the right specialist to do. Yeah. I'm assuming that whoever owns that car now has figured that out. Well, we hope so, for sure. Well, let's take a short break and thank our sponsors. And we come back, we're going to talk with Chip about the perfect, what he deems the perfect all-around collector car. So sit tight. We'll be right back. I've been subscribing to Sports Car Market Magazine for decades, and it shows up like clockwork in my mailbox every month. But what about when I'm on the road? Did you know that digital subscriptions to Sports Car Market are just $2.50 a month when you sign up with the promo code DIGITAL50? That's less than a cup of coffee. You get 50% off regular price just for listening here to Buy, Sell, Hold. Plus, digital subscribers receive instant access to a year's worth of back issues 
and the exclusive Insider's Guide, including the 2020 Insider's Guide to the beautiful Amelia Island Concourse and all the spring auctions as well. No more boredom while sitting at the airport or on your flight. To get your Sports Car Market digital subscription at this discount, go to sportscarmarket.com slash digital50. Your order will automatically get you the 50% off. What a deal. Go and sign up today at sportscarmarket.com slash digital50. Here's another buy, sell, hold special offer. Do you love knowing what the collector car market has done when it comes to values? Of course you do. The Sports Car Market Platinum Auction Database puts 31 years of auction results right at your fingertips, on your mobile device or your computer, no matter where in the world you are. With nearly 300,000 records, that's right, 300,000, it has the information you need to make an informed decision on that oh-so-important classic or vintage vehicle purchase. You'll receive all this for a mere $5.50 a month. That's less than the cost of a sandwich. As a Buy, Sell, Hold podcast listener, use the code PLAT50, that's right, P-L-A-T-50, to get this special discount. Just go to sportscarmarket.com slash platinum50, and the cart will automatically discount your order. Plus, Platinum subscribers also receive access to the full library of back issues of Keith Martin's Insider's Guides, a valuable resource for anyone in the market for collector vehicles. That's sportscarmarket.com slash platinum50. Get your discount today. So, Chip, we're back. What would be or is your perfect all-around collector car? Not necessarily the most expensive or the rarest or most exotic, but a car that each time you go in the garage, you think, you know, I'd like to take that one out today, whether it's a concours or a tour or a rally, because I know I'll feel so good when I'm behind the wheel. What car would that be? Yeah, well, you know, there are a number of them that that, that fall into that uh, kind of that category. But for me, you know, a car needs to be beautiful. It needs to be rare. It 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 needs to be you know somewhat unique. It needs to perform well. And it, it, again, if it's a car that that I'm going to have to drive all the time to the exclusion of others, it has to have utility. It can't be something that after 45 minutes you just you know it's like a root canal. And so, in thinking about cars that have resonated tremendously with me over the years, it's the the Bentley the the post-war Bentley Continentals beginning with the R-Type. I mean, the R-Type, I think they made about 210 of them. They were alloy. They were the fastest four-passenger car in the world. They were safe. You could cruise all day at 80 or 90 miles an hour. So so the rarity and utility factors and the beauty factor, you know, they're all there. Now, would would I like to only have that particular car for the rest of my life? The answer is no, because I, my interests are broader than that. But if I had to pick one, that car pretty much checks all the boxes. For me. Okay, and I've got a couple of other questions for you, Chip. You've mentioned buying and selling at auction several times in our uh, talk today. When you go to buy a car at auction, and you've mentioned sometimes you never saw the car, how much homework do you do in preparation for making a bid? Uh, you know, it really depends on the car. I mean, there have been times when I haven't done enough homework, but over the last 10 or 15 years, I've really done a pretty deep dive and I've gotten to know the, uh, the experts at the auction companies pretty well. So you're, you know, you can buy many of these cars in, 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 with a pretty high level of, of confidence, but I do, I do try to do as much homework on the car as possible. And also my own circumstances living in Asia, you know, you don't have many options in Asia. You've got to fly to uh, Europe or the United States to attend them in person. So I may have a proxy there. Again, I have enough confidence in the the auction companies and a relationship with them 
that gives me the confidence to make decisions frequently by having you know a dialogue with them. But but it, it still takes homework, and 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 sometimes even with the information that I get, I'll I'll walk away from something. So, and I, I have an opportunity now to ask you a valuation question. You talk about the uh, Bentley as being a keeper car forever, and in a way, the GTO is as well. The market values those cars very differently. The the Bentley and the GTO. Why do you think that is? Well, they're you know I mean they're very different cars. Obviously, uh, the, the Bentley the, the the whole genre of of pre war collectible cars you know has been relatively weak from a market standpoint you know over the last few years. But within that space, you know there are jewels in the crown. I mean you're talking about 57s Bugattis, you know Type 59s, 51s. That Bentley would fall into that category. So. How much has it been affected by the, the diminution in, in interest and values of some of the pre-war cars? My guess is probably not, because there were four Burkentine cars made. This is the first. Ralph Lauren owns one. Bentley owns the other. And, and I own this one. The other is a single-seater, so it, not a tour. So you can't really put it in the same category. One has not sold. I, I think my purchase of this car is probably the last one that was ever acquired. So the question is, you know, I mean, what's it worth? I have no idea. I just know that I wouldn't sell it. And so, you know, what has happened to the, to in general with pre-war cars, I don't think affects cars, you know, of this stature, if, if I do say so myself. So Chip, I want to go back to a personal moment. I was, this was Pebble Beach, 2017. I'm sitting in your suite. Thank you very much. I'm watching your car, your 1932 Packard, a twin six Dietrich uh, or 906 twin six Dietrich convertible is one yeah. of the three finalists for best of show. <laughs> one of three. When, how did you feel when you were chosen to be one of the three? And tell us how you felt when your car was not selected for best of show. Well, that's, you know, it's, it's interesting that you remember that. First of all, it was utter disbelief when I was selected as a finalist uh, for, for best of show. Uh, it was Bruce McCall, I think, uh, uh, with his uh, 680S, was it, Mercedes? And right. then, um, and then uh, uh, John McCall brother. with his yeah. <laughs> 335. So, you know, these are all friends. And it really says volumes about how well-run and professional Pebble Beach is. The effort that we put into the restoration of that Packard was immense and we opted to stay away from bling of any kind we we painted it in two shades of muted green uh you know we painted the wheels on the car uh we didn't we didn't no white walls this was about as understated a car that was executed to perfection and i think it resonated with the judges in a way that few other cars did they absolutely loved this car i didn't think it would be a candidate you know for best of show and so when i was up there with john and 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 bruce's car a i was pinching myself that i was even there and i thought that the prize going to uh, bruce was was absolutely correct i think that you know in terms of the dazzle factor which my car didn't have Bruce deserved the prize, but the fact that my car was up there, a car that, that maybe the less, the less knowledgeable observer would say, geez, what makes that so special when it's next to these two dazzling cars? It really is the, the expertise of the judges who could look beyond uh, what was just on the surface to see what, what, how, how wonderful the quality of that restoration and, and, and the rarity of the car was. That was a great moment. It was great to know all three of you. It was very interesting. And what's happened to that car since, Chip? What you know, once a car has been shown at Pebble, what happens to that car? How do you use it, or where do you show it? Well, I, I you know, it, it, the car is literally uh, sitting 
200 yards from, from where I'm speaking now, um, I've been driving the car. I think that, that of any of the uh, the pre-war American cars, there's nothing that is as good as a Packard. I mean, these things are just, they're like magic carpets. I've been driving it down Carmel Valley Road over the Laurelis grade. You know, I'm fiddling with it with the rear view mirror because it's a Victoria and you've got, you know, monstrous blind rear quarters. So I've been driving the car and uh, and enjoying it. And I think it would be a good tour car. Uh, will I show it again? You know, I mean, there's no place to show it now, but uh, the answer is probably yes. Marvelous. Yeah, Chip, you've got uh, a foot in a couple of worlds here because you're headquartered in Hong Kong. You spent a lot of time in the States. What's it like, the political climate in Hong Kong, and how is it affecting uh, your business? Because you're in the supply chain business. Yeah, we are in the supply chain business. We're headquartered in Hong Kong, uh, but we operate uh, uh, around the world, and we don't produce stuff. What we do is we're, we're in the business of, of representing American and European firms from from a compliance and engineering standpoint. We qualify the factories, make sure that they're paying their workers. You know, we, we perform necessary boots on the ground, supply chain management services. And this is the perfect storm of political difficulty, uh, which takes many forms. We're headquartered in Hong Kong. Obviously, there is the, the, the uh, you know, the, the friction between many people in Hong Kong and what they view is as China's overreach uh, under the one country, two systems agreement. There is the pandemic. There is the the incredibly nasty rhetoric between the United States and China on trade. All of this has a terrible impact on my business. And you add the coronavirus, which is you know affecting countries across the world. Our ability to get those boots on the ground and into the factories to make sure that they're compliant is very, very difficult. We're having to do some of it virtually, which ain't easy. So, you know, A, this was entirely unexpected. It's exacerbated by the coronavirus. It is having a devastating impact on my business. Uh, The good news is we have a strong enough balance sheet to weather it. And I think that there will be you know, some real winners that emerge. But I'm just hoping that saner heads prevail and that we can we can kind of you know ratchet the dialogue back get some of the vitriol and finger pointing out of it i mean china has to be you know called to account for many things but so too does the united states and and the consequences for me of course as a as a person doing business globally but headquartered in hong kong is to make everything really difficult so chip let me bring this back to cars for a second what would it take for you to feel comfortable to fly from hong kong to the United States and to ship a car to a Concorde in the States. Yeah, very comfortable. I mean, if there was a Concorde to ship the car to, uh, I'm not, I, I, I fall into the category of not being panicked too much about COVID-19. I worry about it. I, you know, maintain my social distancing. But I think that, you know, you, you, you touch upon something interesting when you ask the question, because the amount of wealth creation in Asia is, is tremendous. I think it's beyond anything that uh, the experts would otherwise think. And we're not talking about just Japan, which was the, the great second largest economy in the world in the, in the 80s and into 1990s. We're talking about India. We're talking about Bangladesh. I mean, there are billionaires everywhere. But you don't have large uh, collector car groupings or garages in Asia. But these people who have accumulated wealth do have cars and they do have collections. And unlike in the 1980s and the early 1990s, you know, that flight that you talked about from an Asian origin to a European or American destination. I mean, you can, BA flies a daily flight out of Hyderabad, India to London. You can buy that, that 
you know, that Bentley or GTO, and you can find somebody in the UK that can tend that car. They can, they can prepare it for shows. All you need to do is get on the airplane and you've got a number of choices a week. And this is the way I've kind of been living my life for the last 35 years. I don't keep cars in Asia. You know, it gives me something to look forward to when I get on the flight. And so this wealth creation coupled with, you know, a transportation infrastructure coupled with, by the way, information. Remember in the old days, back in the 80s, you had to join a car club to learn about, you know, a Fraser Nash or something like that. Now you've got the internet. So you can have some individual in Hyderabad or Bangalore or Beijing get online learn everything there is to know about a certain type of car, acquire that car without having to bring it home, and then having any number of a means to go visit the car. And for that reason, I believe that this talk of the aging demographic of the collector car world really is not going to have an impact on demand for these cars. You know, it doesn't, and I'm talking about industrial quality cars that were made again before 1975. You have the wealth, you you don't need millions of people to embrace the hobby to make it buoyant. You just need a few people that have done their homework to want cars that otherwise are quite rare. So, you know, I have no problem getting on the airplane. I think that once, certainly if a vaccine is, is developed, it, it, would, it would be a game changer. But I think longer term, that dynamic is going to continue. The wealth will be continue to be created. Uh, my biggest fear is regulation. You know, I mean, there are they, you know, sort of politically incorrect objects to own. I don't worry so much about the evaporation of demand or, or you know, impeding travel fascinating journey you take us on today, Chip. And uh, I knew this was going to be a really fun talk. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on, Keith, before we kind of sign away here? No, just that, Chip, I I just Googled uh, uh, drive shaft balancing for Ferrari 275 (laughs) GTBC, and it says AAA drive shaft balancing Carmel. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Where were you in 2001 when I needed you? You, He was on the side of the road in an old car that broke down. That's where exactly. Keith was, yeah. Uh, just like yesterday, right, Keith, in that Volvo? That, yeah, uh, just yeah. like yesterday. Just yeah. like yesterday. Well, Chip, listen, you've taken us on a fantastic ride today. You are a treasure trove of knowledge. I want to thank you for spending some time with us here today on Bicep Hold. Let me ask you this before we let you go. If you were to give our listeners one little piece of advice when it comes to buying, selling, and holding collector cars, what would that advice be? I think, firstly, you need to have an emotional connection with the car. We, we need to be analytical about how we go about acquiring them and storing them and maintaining them. But you got to love them. And, and if you don't love it, you know, regardless of what the market is, maybe you shouldn't you know, be, be, uh, be keeping it. And the other thing is that it can't compromise other important parts of your life, whether they be financial, whether they be family. If as much as you love the car, it's also a thorn in the side in some way, shape or form. It, it doesn't... Uh, you know, merit keeping it in my view. So this is not a particularly analytical view of whether, you know, you should buy, sell or hold anything, but really more of the subjective reasons for for wanting to keep a car. Absolutely. Is there a way for people to learn more about your company? Yeah. www.weconnor.com. There you go. I'll make sure to put a link to that on Chip's Jonas page here on Buy, Sell, Hold. You can follow, check out what he's doing. Uh, You can find everything that Chip has talked about today on his show notes pages on both the Sports Car Market website and the Cars Yeah website. Hey, Chip, thanks for spending a wonderful amount of time with us today and sharing about your world and collector cars. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My best to you both. Thanks, Chip, for being a part of the show. It's always great to connect with you. Thank you, Keith. Be healthy and be well. Yeah. You as well. Thanks so much.
Hey, Mark Green here. If you love the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast, you'll want to listen to my Cars Yeah podcast where over five years I've interviewed over 1,475 inspiring automotive enthusiasts. You'll have free access to my guest shows five days a week. These are amazing people who share their world around cars, trucks, and motorcycles. I take a deep dive into their businesses, and they share with you how they've wrapped their passion for vehicles into their lives. Plus, go to the CarsYeah.com website and hit the free book button, and I'll email you my free filler-up book. It's an ebook filled with beautiful fuel filler fun and inspiring quotes from my past guests. Once subscribed, you'll get my weekly blog as well. You can find all the Cars yeah shows on CarsYeah.com or on any mobile device using your podcast app. Just search for Cars yeah Podcast and subscribe today. That way you'll get both Buy, Sell, Hold with Keith and me and the Cars yeah Podcast delivered right to your mobile device or your computer. Thanks for listening. We hope to have shed some light today on the collector car market. You can listen to all the Buy, Sell, Hold podcasts at sportscarmarket.com and carsyeah.com. You'll find hundreds of inspiring automotive enthusiasts on the Cars Yeah website as well. Be sure to log into sportscarmarket.com and subscribe to Keith's SCM weekly newsletter. You'll find digital issues, insider event guides, and price guides, along with our platinum database, column profiles, classifieds, and many other resources. Join Keith and Mark next week to hear from another automotive industry leader who will help you determine when to buy, sell, or hold.